Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Today and over the past couple days, and frankly before that, even through the election, lots of people with opinions on Doug Ford announcing, declaring that he is putting an end to Kathleen Wynne's recently constructed sex ed program. And he is going to, for the time being anyway, go back to the old one that was in use up until I believe 2015, was constructed I think in 1998, if I recall correctly. Uh, This is good as far as we like when people have opinions. We like when people are engaged. We don't want passive, apathetic people. We want people to be engaged. This one's a tricky one, though, because there are strong feelings on this. So how do we find the middle ground? Well, two things to consider as we get into this. The first one is, I don't think, regardless of your thoughts on this, nobody can be surprised that this has happened because Doug Ford ran on a platform that he was going to do exactly this. He won a majority government. So you knew this was going to happen. No one should be shocked that this has happened. But, and the second part is, I think most people would agree that what is in place does need to be upgraded. It does need to be modernized to some degree somehow. Question is, how do we do that? Where do we go on this? Now, I've read a lot in the past few days. I've listened to a lot of people in the past few days. And I believe that my next guest has presented one of, if not the most reasoned, most balanced view on this. It's a really interesting position. Not everyone's going to agree. Not everyone's going to agree with 100% of it. But I think that when you consider the two ends of the radical spectrum, this one slides in the middle and probably has a lot to say that we should listen to. Her name is Barbara Kay. She's a columnist with the National Post. Uh, She joins me now. Barbara, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you for having me on. Uh, This is... um, You start this column, and I want to get right into it, because one of the main points you make, one of the first points you make, and I think that you touch on one of the biggest challenges that we have whenever we're going to start talking about redefining or coming up with a new sex ed program, is that we have uh, ideologues and activists on both sides of this who want their side, who want their extreme end. You suggest, and I think it's a valid point, maybe we should start by removing them from the equation altogether. Let's get the people at the most extreme ends out of this thing so we can start to have a real conversation. Yes, I do. And I I do think that for many years now, sex education has been in the hand of ideologues uh, because it's been uh, in the hands of people associated with uh, OISE, which is a very biased, very ideological school, the the school of education. The the educators who teach the educators are extremely biased. They're they're full of... uh, uh, the kind of ideology that is associated with extreme progressivism, the far left, um, and that's who's promoting these, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a very activist kind of agenda, and uh, I would take that out of their hands. It's not science-based. It's, it's absolutely theory-based and um, dogma-based. Well, and you know that when you say that line, that there will be a lot of people who will take issue with the idea. They'll say, wait, it's not, it's not theory. It's, it's, we're basing it on science, modern science, changing science, but we're basing it on that. Well, they will say that, but then they won't be able to point to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking particularly now because it's a very hot uh, item and because it's now taking up more and more time on the agenda. I'm thinking more about uh, the trans theory of gender fluidity. Uh, nobody can point to any science that establishes this as uh, a science-based or uh, evidence-based settled matter. There is no such thing. This is a theory, and it's taught as if it was science. Uh, But the scientists, the credible scientists, uh, do not find that gender is unrelated to biology. In fact, they find that it's closely related to biology and that 
those who suffer from the idea that their gender is completely separate, different from their, or that they're born in the wrong body, the, the, this is called dysphoria, and it does, it does happen in, in uh, quite a small percentage of the population, uh, but it's very similar to the idea uh, that anorexics have, that they are in a fat body and that, you know, uh, they don't believe that they are thin. They think they are fat. So uh, it's, a, it's a belief, it's a subjective feeling, but it is not, it doesn't prove anything. It, it proves that some people have uh, delusions about, uh, about, you know, what their what reality is, their own reality, is, is entirely subjective. Now, I, I, I think that most people would say, well, I don't know what most people would say on this. Would you argue that that then should not be taught or brought up or mentioned at all in the curriculum? Or how, if it, if it should be, how should it be dealt with? Well, it certainly shouldn't be dealt with uh, in kindergarten, as some uh, many, many schools are doing. It, it, this is not something that a, a, a kid of four or five can handle. It's, uh, to tell a child, uh, you know... Uh, you 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 think you're a girl or you think you're a boy, but it's possible uh, that you're really not. Or there are children here. This is you know we there are children who who were born in the wrong body or they're. I mean this is not something they can handle. And and it, it even if and this is not going to happen in many classrooms. Even if there is a, uh, a, a dysphoric child in the classroom, if there's a little boy that comes to school in a dress, he's dressed up and he he's acting like a girl. You don't have to get into the whole theory of, of dysphoria or transgenderism. You can simply say, yes, uh, you know, Jack likes to dress as a girl. He likes, to, he likes to act like a girl. You know, that's all you have to say to a four-year-old. They accept that. They will accept that. They won't, they won't dispute it. But, but you can't be telling them, this could happen to you. Um, it's the same as saying to a child, um, you know, you think your mummy and daddy are your real mummy and daddy, but maybe you were adopted. You don't know. Um, what would that do to a child? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Barbara Kay from the National Post joins us. And, and just before the break, Barbara, you were chatting about some of the difficulties, challenges around things. And you use the example about the trans discussion, which is a complicated one. And this, I think, gets to the very heart, though, of where this becomes difficult, because there are some who will share your view that that is something that is probably not necessary for students, especially in elementary or middle school, to know that part of it. But there are others who say, absolutely, that's incorrect. That's essential for them to understand. So how do you find the middle ground? Well, if it's essential for them to understand... Uh, they, but what, what they don't mean it's essential to understand. What they mean is it's essential for other people to affirm, to affirm a theory that is not based in evidence. So if they really want little kids to understand, then let them understand the actual credible, reliable information that is associated with transgenderism. And let them understand that when children start acting like the opposite sex, uh, it means nothing until uh, they're, you know, there's, there's, that's not a signal that they are transgender. It's a sign that they are going through a phase of dysphoria that is likely, up to 90% likely, to be resolved in favor of their natal sex by the time they are adolescent. But what they want to teach children is that the minute a child shows some nonconformity uh, behavior, that looks like, uh, you know, a tendency to, to, to want to present as the opposite sex, that they get affirmed immediately 
as transgender. They are not transgender at that stage. They are merely non-conforming. And uh, there's a rush to affirm, and there's a rush to educate kids on the fact that, that, that gender is fluid and that anybody, many people, could be, you know, there's no such thing as this norm of that biology and gender are, are, are closely aligned. Uh, but the science is that they are, and, that, and the science is that actual dysphoria, the kind that persists and lasts into adulthood, uh, the science is that that is rare and is very unlikely to happen to them. This whole gender-bred charts that they have up on the wall saying that they're pretty well encouraging children to say, how do you feel today? You know, are you, where are you on this chart? You know, on the one side is male and the other side is female. And there's so many places in between that you could be. In other words, that sex is not a binary thing. Um, the fact that 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 girls, uh, you know, girls and boys uh, are completely different physically uh, and in every cell of their body are different from, you know, one sex from the other is completely irrelevant to who you are as, you know, in your head and, 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 and how you feel gender wise. That's that is not science. That's theory. That's a hypothesis that comes totally out of the minds of ideologues. So let's let's jump in for just a second here, because we know, I, I think that I, I'm, I'm willing to gamble that most of the people on every side of the argument here would say, if we're going to have sex education in our schools, and we should have some, we shouldn't not have sex education, and if we are going to do that, that we can all agree that we should be preparing kids, pr- uh, warning kids, teaching them how to deal to warn against internet porn and predatory behavior and understand the names of the anatomical parts, the correct names, not nicknames and things like that. Understand the biology and anatomy. I think those things, I don't think there's anybody that's going to take issue. Well, that's one of my recommendations. Teach biology because biology is settled science. Biology is something that you can say to a child, you know, this is the female body and this is you know inside here are the reproductive organs and here's what happens when when a baby is conceived and here's how it gets out and all that stuff that's very fine because that's objective knowledge is that prudish to to limit it to that well it's it's what kids are able to comprehend when you start getting into these theories of of they're not ready yet for that wait until they can comprehend the difference between a theory and evidence-based science. And they're not getting that. They're getting only a theory and a hypothesis and um, uh, an activism-generated push to normalize something that is absolutely not normal. What about parents? What about, let me jump in because just, we only have a minute left here. What about parents? Because one of the things that sort of strikes me with everything that's been going on is we have a lot of parents who have a thought process. They have an opinion on this, whether it's on one side or the other. There's lots of parents who want to have a say. And yet at the same time, it sounds as though what a lot of government sex education belief is, is that there's not a re- it sounds like there's not really a role for parents in this. Well, that's, re- that's it. I think parents have every right uh, to be involved with their child. You know, if something's going on with their child, that a child is distressed over something, uh, that's absolutely, they, they are part of, of the discussion on how a But child beyond is- that, Barbara, do we, have we abdicated the responsibility 
of the parents that once seemed to have been there to teach I their kids sex ed. I, think, I don't think that teachers... Listen, you've got teachers in these schools. They're not scientists. They're not... They, they have no... They don't have degrees in, in, in sexuality or, or, or uh, biology. They're, they're, they're teaching something that, that a program was created for them. So, uh, yes, parents have every right to be involved, and uh, the default at schools should not be affirmation for four-year-olds and five-year-olds. It should be watch and wait. The, the parents should be brought in, look, your child is presenting as the opposite sex. Well, okay, let him dress the way he wants, let him this, let him that. Like, but don't get into it with the other, other children and get into a whole discussion of how it's so tremendously normal for a child with dysphoria to be, yeah, this is just one of the many, many ways that a child uh, can be. And you, it, this, the, the, the ultimate message is this can happen to you. And if it does, no sweat, because it's just normal to be taking pills for the rest of your life and to be having surgery and wearing binders. Uh, this, is, this is a banality. This is something uh, that teachers, that, that the state, that the state totally approves of and thinks uh, you should uh, feel very comfortable about. Uh, This is not the state's role. Barbara Kay from the National Post, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It is, uh, look, this this is the most complicated, the most difficult one, because we do know that on every side, there will be some, Barbara argues that it should be just based on science, not theory. And I agree with that. And I think many people agree with that. The problem now is, there is a disagreement on what is science and what is theory. And there's a disagreement on what kids are ready for. And there's a disagreement on what is appropriate. And there's a disagreement on what role the parents have in this. But I want to go to her very first point that she makes in the column. And I think this is the point. This is the starting point for any discussion we should be having officially with any sex ed course in this province. Let us lose the advocates. Let us lose the folks who are ideologues and activists. Let us have parents. Let us have scientists. Let us have doctors. Let us have teachers. Let us have the people who are not pushing any kind of agenda on either side of the political spectrum. And let's sort out what should actually be taught to our kids and how it should be taught. And then we can probably find some middle ground and probably not be arguing about this forever. Probably. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me get to this story because I came across this tidbit. It really was a tidbit that I first heard of a couple days ago. And it came to us from Kevin Shea. Now, Kevin Shea, if you're a regular listener to this show, you've heard Kevin before. You may not recognize the name. He works for the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's a hockey historian. Great guy. We love having him on here. He told a story about a guy named, on Facebook, I saw this, of a guy named Peter Ng. Now, some of you, especially the hockey people out there are saying, I know that name. I know that name, Peter Ng. Why do I know that name, Peter Ng? Well, of course you do, because Peter Ng, back in the late 80s, early 90s, mostly early 90s, was a goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now you're putting it together, right? Yeah, I remember that name now. Uh, He was later traded to Edmonton in a trade that brought the Toronto Maple Leafs grant fewer, but that was later on. Peter Ng joins us now. Peter, how are you tonight? Great, thank you. Uh, By the way, how often do you get that now, where someone hears your name and they go, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? Uh, I think just playing in the Toronto market, it's a little different than than pretty much anywhere, I would say, in the NHL. Um, Leaf fans are loyal fans. Um, Leaf fans, you know, grew up watching games just like I did, seeing Hockey Night in Canada. So it it amazes me how many people remember you, um, but... um, 
but it seems like this community is really strong and uh, they don't seem to forget too many too many players along the way. No, I mean, as a goalie, especially if you play a few games or a few years in Toronto for the Maple Leafs, people are going to remember your name. I mean, I and I can prove that because I was sitting here today thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I can, you've played a lot more than some of these guys. I can probably list off about ten or twelve of the most obscure two or three or five game Leaf goalies ever. It's it's uh, somehow it sticks in your head. And you know what? It's it's actually a great thing. So over the last uh, three years, I was, uh, I was uh, the CEO of the Leaf Alumni, and we do events uh, so many places, charity events. And having, especially local players from, if we're in an area that somebody came from, um, grew up in, played their junior hockey in, we always try and involve those players. And some of them, like you said, you know, maybe didn't play uh, many games or many years, but in that community, they're very well known. And oftentimes, they're the ones sought after uh, over, you know, some of obvious greats that would that may also be in attendance. And I just find that it's kind of indicative of life, right? Everybody sort of has somebody that they relate to. Because mm-hmm. maybe they're, you know, if they're the star, maybe they relate to the star. Everyone relates to the star. Uh, but maybe they're that person that, you know, just wasn't, uh, you know, as well known. And they just kind of gravitate behind one player or another. And that's what it's all about. And that's what, uh, you know, the lure of, of sports is. Um, it's, it's having someone you can identify with, somebody you can cheer for and, uh, and maybe, you know, try and be like. Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Mike. The guy that I loved when I was coming up, when I was growing up, uh, I don't even know why, but I did, was Rocky Saganuk. Yeah. One of those guys that you just described exactly was, uh, well, not necessarily a star, but one of those guys that, uh, that I always remembered. So, but you, you, well, you fast, yeah. And you fast forward to a, a Rocky, I've seen him several times over the years. He's been helping kids uh, get better um, in the states and in Chicago, and right? Running, running, yep, in Chicago, running hockey schools. I think for at least three decades. So there's a good example of somebody that you know you you thought of highly, and he's gone on to help a lot of players get better over the years. And whether they become a an NHL star or not, it's immaterial. It's about giving confidence to kids and giving them an outlet and a reason to be healthy. And like I said, everybody has a, a great impact, I think, in, in uh, played the game. Yeah, Rocky Saganek, by the way, also won an Allen Cup right here or just outside town here with the Mott's Clamatos way back when, I think 1989. But anyway, we're not talking about Rocky Saganek today. We're talking about Peter Ng. <laughs> um, you were a Toronto guy. You were a Leaf fan, I'm assuming, when you were a kid growing up? Yeah, well, I think the biggest Leaf fan uh, I've ever met was my grandmother. Um, <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Uh, she... She had a stroke, um, I'd say, in my early early teens. She she came to live with us, and every single Saturday night, it was Hockey Night in Canada. So um, I can't profess that I was, you know, a big fan. I loved to play the game. That was my calling. Uh, it didn't matter. Like, as long as there were lights outside, and if there weren't lights outside, you know, by the plaza, we'd play, that, play the game uh, ridiculously. And if it wasn't there, it was in the house, and then just it was always, always going. But my grandmother loved the the, the lease, and at that time it was you know Sittler and McDonald yep. and Palmateer and that whole group and Tiger. So you know on Saturday nights I was 
too young I would be uh, able to stay up and watch the entire game, but uh, I get to stay for the first few periods and, of course, sneak in for a few more because uh, her bedroom wasn't too far away and she had a TV there. So, yeah, it was uh, definitely indoctrination to it, and, and uh, you can't help but you know, root for the, the home team. So you get drafted by them, which is huge. Then you get called up at some point in 19, either 89 or 90. I'm not sure when your first game was with them. Do you remember that first game? Uh, yeah, I got called up for a few games in 89, but really my first year was, was uh, 90-91, and uh, my goal at the time, I, I remember it distinctly, it used to be just could you just be around for a few games, um, that would be fantastic. You know, it's it worked so hard to try to get there. And, and it started off, I didn't dress for the first uh, two or three games. We went on a, on a swing west, uh, but I came along for the trip and, and then uh, I had a chance to play. And, uh, geez, it was one game, two games. And I was like, wow, if I could play five games, that would be fantastic. You know, and then, you know, maybe have another year. Um, in the minors, well, five game became 10, and then it was, you know, 15, it was 20. Boy, if you play 30 games in a year, that was pretty substantial from, from any perspective as a goalie. And I, I went on to play 56 games in my rookie year. Huh. So it was, uh, it was quite an experience. And, you know, like some of the goals that, and I think what people may not think about is, is they're all little goals, like I said, and that's been, my understanding of it from so, so many guys I played with that you know one game let's play two games well you know I like to play against uh, these certain teams and it's like well, gee it'd be nice if you could play one game against every team right and those little goals become uh, bigger and bigger and some go on to you know achieve the ultimate dreams of their Stanley Cup and and all those things but I think they all come with small small steps and small goals and and it was, it was quite a, a fun year for sure. But for a guy who then was not a sure thing, you weren't, let's say, Carey Price coming in, where you, by that point, you know, Carey Price knew, or you could guess with him or someone else that he's going to have a long career. When you're looking at, I'd like to play three games or five games or 30 or whatever, are you then saying, I better k- keep some stuff. I better keep my first stick. I better keep my first shirt, whatever else, because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Are you gathering stuff up along the way? You know, unfortunately not. Um, why and and a lot of things were very hard to come by as well like you know i think that obviously the players now they have an opportunity to, to get their jerseys and such um we didn't have that opportunity they were they weren't offered to us for sale it wasn't it wasn't something that was really uh talked about or thought about much at the time i'm sure some guys were fantastic at it but honestly coming up as a rookie uh, it, your focus is just trying to play the game. And I think it's much easier if you're that veteran that's played 10 years and and uh, you, you're in that sort of routine and understand, you know, geez, wow, I've you know, been around this game for so long, I need to collect this and collect that. And But this certainly was not something in uh, in my radar or on my radar at the time. Okay, so you're in your first year. You're playing on the way to playing 56 games. It's January the 5th, 1991. It's a Saturday night, Maple Leaf Gardens, Hockey Night in Canada. You're play, playing the L.A. Kings, who by that point have Wayne Gretzky on their team. Uh, you remember that night? They were in first place, I, by the way, yeah, too. They were pretty true. good. You remember that <laughs> night? I do. Okay. Uh, had you ever faced Wayne Gretzky before? Um, 
Yes, in LA. Okay. But uh, first time, you know, the, the electricity at Maple Leaf Gardens on a Saturday night uh, is something that I'll never forget. And that didn't matter which team. Yeah, but when just, he comes in. But when he came in, it was uh, electric. Absolutely. I, I have people that come up to me this day that worked, worked the game, that were ushers, usherettes, I, I people that were at the game, people that watched the game. And it's just, you know, like I said, Saturday night was special, but with Gretz coming to town, and it only happened, I think it was uh, once in that year, it was, uh, everyone took notice. As a goalie, when, as a player, as a guy who was playing back then, when you're playing Wayne Gretzky, did you get extra pumped up? Do you get extra amped? Do you get extra nervous? Anything like that? Um, I just remember the electricity because, you know, I was, I was pretty young and I remember just watching every one of those cup <laughs> runs yeah. that they had and, you know, and, and, uh, and rooting for the Canadian team. So it was, uh, yeah, it was quite special. All right. So you get to the second period. And somehow, and I can't remember how, uh, he ends up getting a penalty shot. How did Wayne Gretzky end up getting a penalty shot on you? Uh, I, th- I think he was actually uh, hooked on the way. Okay. He didn't get a, didn't get a shot on his, on his breakaway. Okay, so you're standing there now. Again, let me recap this thing. It's Maple Leaf Gardens. It's Saturday night. You're playing for the Maple Leafs. Uh, you're playing against the Kings. It's Wayne Gretzky now circling around at center ice on national TV on a penalty shot. Um, what happens? Uh, well, uh, just his windup, right? He, it wasn't like today where there is a, you know, sometimes there's a strategy around somebody comes in really slow, uh, one person, you know, might come in fast They come from the left, come from the right. It was at that time, it was thought of, that if somebody's going to have a penalty shot, like they're going all out for it. So the cool part about it is that, uh, um, Wayne went, you know, circled at his blue line and came with like full head of steam. So it was, uh, it happened very quickly. So I just came out to match speed with him because he was coming with so much speed. And uh, the place I said, like, you could just feel the, you know, the whole place was buzzing at that point. And uh, he, he made a great move. Uh, I was fortunate to uh, to stay with him and, and get my uh, leg on it and just, you know, how the place erupted, I'll never forget the feeling or or how loud it was in that building. Yeah, you did make the moment. save. Just in case anyone missed that, you made the save. You got your left toe out there, you make the save, the place goes bananas. I don't know if you know this, but in Wayne Gretzky's career, he only had six penalty shots. So, I mean, it's not exactly something he was, uh, you're in rare company here for facing one of those. Um, you, <laughs> is that the, I mean, is that the high point of, the, of your career when you look back on it, one of them? Oh, it's a special moment, absolutely. Um, it's one, I think, of all moments many people remember, seem, seem to remember the most. Um, but it was just special if you're playing against your, you know, one of your childhood heroes and, it, you know, you're, you're on the ice uh, with that person. I, I, I can't explain it better than that. Yeah, I mean, okay. So after the game, somehow, sometime after the game, somehow you end up giving this stick away how did that happen um well I, when you have like things that were broken or otherwise um, um you know there's people that may ask for uh for something and you know trainers will pass it along or or 
Well, they, it's not like today. They'll, they'll inspect it pretty well to make sure that it is broken. And, and in fact, uh, that stick was broken. So uh, I had a request for it. And uh, I honestly don't recall that to a great degree. I'm sure you may have someone that. Well, yeah, let me, do, really well. let me do that. Let me bring in Todd Arkell because Todd Arkell was the guy who somehow got his hands on that stick. Todd, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Do you remember how you ended up getting that stick? Well, you know, actually, it's I, I do kind of understand. After the game, after the game, I was down at the dressing room. Peter and I were friends. We used to golf together in the summers and, and hang out together a bit. And uh, I was came down, and he invited me into the dressing room, and we were just chatting. And then I, I, I don't remember exactly what happened. I don't know if I asked or he offered, but he, I remember Brian Papineau, who's still the equipment manager yep. for the Leafs. Uh, Peter going, "Hey, Pappy, it's look at it, it's broken, it's cracked, it's broken." He goes, "All right, fine." And then that was it. I took the stick. I went out. I got Peter's Peter's uh, family, and we went off to the restaurant to wait for him to to kind of show up. And uh, he signed it. I had a son who was born in 1990, who was only a few mo- few months old at the time, and he had signed it to him at that particular time. And I kind of tucked it away for later. And uh, tucked it where? Tucked Has it been on display it's, somewhere or in a closet it was somewhere? Just in the house, but probably more 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 in closets than on display. Surprisingly enough, I of the stuff I've collected and uh through through the years you know had it and then lost lost track with Peter through while well, he was in Vegas and, and doing diff- various things down there and then through that mutual friend Kevin Shea he uh he had called me up one day and he said you know I, I ran into Peter and he, he hasn't kept anything from his from his playing days do you still have that stick hmm. and I said I do and so we uh we arranged an opportunity to uh, get it back to the uh the gentleman who actually used it. Well, Peter, let's go for to you for a sec. Because when uh, over the years, did it ever dawn on you? Because you said you never collected anything during the time because it wasn't easy to do. But did it ever dawn on you later after you retired, after you'd moved on from hockey, that that may have been a bit of a mistake not to keep something? Yeah, I, I have a few uh, a few things along the way. I was fortunate enough; um, the Leafs did do a wonderful thing um, for me with uh, the save on Gretzky. They did actually. Uh, keep the puck and put it in a frame. Uh, my first shutout as well. Um, so those were those were fantastic uh, keepsakes uh, that stayed at my dad's house pretty much until a year or two ago. But I think where I really noticed it was uh, with my children and not, mm. you know, them them you know asking for certain things or to see certain things and not really having uh, much to show. So. That's where I think that's where you see it is in in the next generation, and uh, that's pretty cool. And because they must have your kids must have seen must have seen the video by now of that penalty shot probably a hundred times. Yeah, they they've seen. I wouldn't say a hundred times, but they've actually they have seen it. Yeah. Wow, I'm surprised. If it was me who made that save, I would have shown them every single day of their life. <laughs> um, but but no, it's not my personality. Well, no, and I'm and I'm joking, but I mean it does it, it does. I do wonder if over the years. As I mean, Gretzky by then was already more than a legend. He was already by far the greatest player. But as time goes by even further, if you start to think about, you know, there's very few guys that have had that chance to do something like that on that kind of stage. It's it's a big moment. That was definitely fun for sure. And you know what? What's what's really nice as you uh, as you retire, our alumni is I think very strong. Um, guys are humble, and uh, I've had. Uh, several opportunities to, you know, to see Wayne along the way and, 
Uh, we're actually with with our company. We produced uh, we produced some sticks off ice uh, sticks for for them and for the uh, for uh, Ty Gretzky's hockey school. So still involved with the family, and uh, and I will tell you this with a hundred percent accuracy. I have never brought up that moment to win. <laughs> I was going to say, do you taunt yeah, him every not, time? <laughs> <laughs> not a chance. Maybe somebody else would do that, but you know what? I think that's no, kind of I, respect of hockey, and yeah. you know, one day I would love, I would love to have one. I have a beautiful picture of that moment happening, um, and because uh, Gretz went to his backhand, is you know, it has his name across the back, pucks coming off of me. And it's like one of the keepsakes of all of them that I I love to have. But and I, you know I I still even though as many as many times as I've seen him, I could never bring myself to just ask him to autograph one of those. For me. <laughs> that, that would be cool. Uh, Todd, bring you back in for a second because you hear from Kevin Shea, the guy that we talked about, who's your mutual friend. You hear that. Um, there's been a lack of things that uh, that Peters had. He doesn't have a lot of memorabilia. So when you first hear this. Do you say, yeah, it's fine. I'll happily give that stick back. Or did it take some convincing? Honestly, I mean, even though Peter's listening now, did it take some self-convincing that you were going to give that stick back to him? There was not even a moment of hesitation. Really? You know, good for you. I mean, we, you know, we, we had hung out together, like I said, in a big good friend's lost touch. And I thought, you know what, like this is part of his career and part of what he did. And I felt, uh, I felt honored to be included in, in a lot of times, you know, to family dinners and, and various events and stuff. It, it didn't even, didn't even, no doubt. What about no your kids? You have kids, though. What about your kids? They they must have, did you ever think, oh, this might be something they'd want? Well, it's funny. It, he signed it to my older son, Taylor, who was born in 1990, right? And, and that particular night, I think actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, was it Bruce Barker who introduced us, I think, maybe first... Um, I'm trying to remember, local radio personality from Rock 95. And uh, anyhow, he had uh, managed to uh, to get a, an L.A. Kings jersey signed by Gretzky on the same night. So I had a Gretzky jersey and a Peter Ring stick from when he, when he stopped him on the penalty shot. And I'm like, well, we should package that up into a frame at some point. What a cool, cool thing. And having been at the game and actually watched, um, it was, it was kind of neat. And then over the years, my, my older son... He wasn't really in love with hockey. He ended up loving skiing and curling and different winter sports. And it sat away, and he didn't want it. Then a couple of years ago, he was like, you know my Gretzky jersey? Could I get that back? And I started laughing. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and he had no thought about the stick because he hadn't really had connection to that. But for whatever reason, obviously, a name like Wayne, he, uh, he immediately was like, you know, maybe I'd like to have that. That would be something I might like to have. So, you know, I had hung on to it, and... Uh, I think it's great that it's uh, kind of in its rightful place. It all worked out. We only have a couple minutes left here, but when did you actually get together then and hand it over? Because Peter now has the stick back. When did that happen? Like Tuesday. Oh, really? Oh, that recently? Yeah, Peter Peter had, I, I sent him a note. I said, look, let me know when you're in town. And uh, he had an alumni meeting and he, on his way home, he uh, stopped by actually my youngest son's uh, baseball game in Etobicoke. It just was a, happened to be great routing and uh, we got to, hang out for an hour and chat and reminisce and uh, and make it happen. It was great. So, Peter, where's the stick going now? It's got to go somewhere obvious. It's got, it can't be in a closet, I'm guessing. It's got to go somewhere good. Where are you going to be putting it? You know, I, I don't have a... Uh, I haven't thought that far ahead, to be honest with you. It was really nice of, of Todd to, to um, pass it back along. 
Um, I've been able to, set, to show my son, but uh, my daughter's a big hockey fan, and she's up at camp right now. So I think uh, we'll, we'll first see, uh, pass along to her, let, let her see that, and then uh, we'll see in the future what we do with it. I'm sure that Wayne won't mind signing it. He, he got a few points along the way. I'm sure that being stopped once probably won't destroy the man. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Peter Ng and Todd Arkell. Guys, great story. Uh, thanks for joining me. Really, uh, really fun to talk about this. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Todd. That is, uh, again, Todd Arkell and Peter Ng. Um, it is, um, it, what a terrific story. What a what an interesting thing, because I am always surprised when athletes don't keep stuff. Because I always think that I would just want to collect all the stuff I could get from my career, but here's the thing, and, and we didn't go into it too much, but so many people have told me over the years, yeah, but if you keep your shirt from your first game, you're kind of announcing to the team that you don't really think you're going to be here for very long. And you want to send the message that you're really confident you're going to be with this team for a long time. So why do I need my sweater for my first game or the puck or the stick or whatever? I got to believe that honestly, if times were a little different, if 1991 was 2018 and Wayne Gretzky was still in his prime and Peter Ng was still playing in his rookie season and he stopped Wayne Gretzky on a penalty shot now, I'm sure that stick doesn't go anywhere. I'm sure the puck doesn't go anywhere. The pads are probably put in storage. The shirt is probably put away. The mask, you're getting all new stuff. You're keeping everything. Because when is that going to happen again? Ironically, the one other time Wayne Gretzky ever had a penalty shot at Maple Leaf Gardens, I was there. I was there with my dad, January 16, 1982. They're playing against the Leafs. The Oilers, with the Oilers then, the Oilers came in as the top team in the league. Gretzky was on his way to 215 points, and Bunny LaRock stopped Wayne Gretzky on a penalty shot, and the Oilers lost 8-1 to that night. Who knew? You never know what you're going to see when you go to a sporting event, right? That's the whole beauty of it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cadillac Bill is a, uh, a guy we like on this show. We've had him on here a bunch of times. One of Hamilton's more unique individuals. He joins us now. Bill, how are you today? Hey, Scott. Uh, good, good to talk to you again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, we love having you on, and we're doing this because tomorrow night at uh, This Ain't Hollywood, you will be having an album release party for Cadillac Bill and Creeping Bent. It probably does not surprise me in any way that you are having a CD release party on Friday the 13th. Uh, well, absolutely. It, it just fell into place. Ten years. We, we haven't had to have a CD in ten years. And just lucky enough, the day we released our CD, it's Friday the 13th. So this was not by plan. It just it, kismet. Nope. Just, just lucky, just lucky, lucky. Before we get into this, because I, I want to ask you a bunch of things. Um, Creeping Bent, Cadillac Bill, okay, that's your name. Creeping Bent, where does the name Creeping Bent come from? Well, well Creeping Bent is a nice type of weed. <laughs> it, it's actually a grass, Creeping of, of Bent course. grass. Of course, I hadn't and, thought of that. Yeah, and, and I, I had this poster with weeds, and there's some coolest names, and one of them was Creeping Bent. And I, had, I was called Cadillac Bill and Creeping Bent for two years. And after two years, I realized it was both CBCB, Cadillac Bill, Creeping Bent. I didn't even know it at the time. I didn't even notice. 
Well, that's uh, it works. It, it, again, perfect, yeah. you know, just like Friday the 13th. Uh, so tell me yeah. about this CD. It's been 10 years since you've been trying to do this, since you've been putting this together. Uh, tell me about your CD. Because, again, for people who don't know, and I, let me just say this, and, I, and you know that I say it with, with absolute uh, affection this way, is you are you are one of the more unique characters in this city. You've got a show on Cable 14. People have seen that show. They know you've, you've got a different view on things. Tell me about the CD. Where does it come from for you? Well... Well, the CD is a bit of a, a, a mixed match of stuff over the years that's never been released. Uh, some of it's very recent, some of it's very old, and it's just—it's uh, sort of a compilation of unusual songs of mine. And, and that Dragon song, uh, by the way, I truly believe dragons actually existed. Many years ago, about 30 years ago, I did a documentary on Rogers people in Toronto about how dragons actually existed. So when you listen to the song, all of that is the scientific explanation of how they actually existed. And I don't want to bore you with my explanation of how they actually existed right now. So that was that is one example of the, some of the songs on it. And one of the other songs is a song called This Song, and it's all about how me and the creeping then we die, we get old and die, and that's the music that I use for the theme music for my TV show. <laughs> it, it sounds very uplifting. How about that? Eh? <laughs> uh, will you be, is your song, see, I, I stumbled on it today. Uh, will you be putting your cover of Funky Cold Medina on the album? Because nothing screams tall, white British guy like Tone Loke. <laughs> I, I, uh, I love Tone Loke. He's one of my favorites, so I was uh, very happy to do a tone load song. Yeah, that one's on the album, absolutely. We've got a, a, about three covers. We've got My Baby Does the Hanky Panky. we got Tone Loads, Funky Cold Medina. Um, and we've got uh, Shortening Bread. I, I did this original version of Shortening Bread using a drum machine. <laughs> so, uh, do, Bill, so do, pe- do, do people know how to take you like do they do, are you do you are do they think you're either a serious musician or are you a novelty act or are you a comedian like what what honestly what what do you position yourself as well well i've been doing this for over 20 years so i think by now a lot of radio people uh have sort of kind of figured out that uh that i well i don't know where I can be notched into. I mean, some people think, well, my band's rockabilly. Other people say we're punk. Other people say we're classic rock. So, but I don't know. I think people kind of figured it out over the years now that uh, I think I'm like a bit like uh, um, uh, um, well, I love the, the, the Cramps and I love um, um, Lou Reed and um, I don't know. So you're kind of know. like I, I, you're kind of like Lou Reed with cramps. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> new wave. I, I grew up in the new wave days, so uh, that's probably why. Well, and I love Monty Python. Well, it, it all fits in. It definitely fits in. We're going to have to get a copy of this CD so we can give one out on the show one of these days. Um, I'm going to drop one off to you. We will do that. Next week, we'll have a giveaway. Someone's going to win a copy of uh, of Cadillac Bill's new CD very quickly. The concert is f- uh, tomorrow evening at This Ain't Hollywood. What time, if someone wants to drop by and see it? Well, well it starts at 9, 
Uh, we go on at midnight, and I've got to say, this is going to be one heck of a night. It's going to be more of a variety show. We've got a comedian called Brenda Lenny going on first, and she's very funny. Then we've got uh, Will Gillespie, who's a very funny and talented songwriter. Uh, and then we've got an Elvis impersonator. Of course you do. And then, and then we've got Sammy Squid and the Squids, and they're quite a characters. And then there's us, and we're going to be having bubbles and fire. I'm setting fire to my amp. Well, we unfortunately we have to we have to run, but you know they always say leave people wanting more. I'm sure there'll be more to tell. Uh, you can see them tomorrow at uh, this ain't Hollywood. Listen to the Scott Radley show, then head down there and uh, and see Cadillac Bill and Creeping Ben. Bill, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. That is uh, that is one of our favorite guys on the show. Always unique. And again, if you do want to see something that is really unique, there's your opportunity. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.